an afternoon. Praise God, it's good to see you and to be seen by you. Um, and it's a real privilege to be sharing um, in this series that we have started focusing on the church. And just greeting Azariah this morning um, warms my heart. And it reminds me of myself because I grew up in church. And so from the time I was probably two years old, I was being taken to church by my grandmother. And I, it was just me and my grandmother that lived in the house. Like my cousins would pass through all the time, in and out. Sometimes they'd stay, sometimes they weren't. I had an older cousin who was in boarding school. And so when he came home on school holidays, I would see him. Um, but apart from that, uh, it was just me and my gran in the house. So I never really knew community uh, apart from church. And that's where I learned to commune. I learned social skills. That's where I learned to, um, what it is to have people um, just be surrogate, pa surrogate parents, as it were. And so with my gran already being a pensioner when she took me into her care, you know, she needed help and support. And I truly experienced that in the life of the church. And so as I see children growing up, and, you know, even my granddaughter is here today, Kena, and she's a, a, a church girl through and through already. I, I walked in this morning, she had her hand up like this <laughs> as we sang praise to the Lord. And it warms my heart because in these formative years, these are such important influences on our children's lives. And church isn't just for children, like Christmas. But it's actually for all of us. And there's a way in which all of us actually benefit and experience the goodness of God, the grace of God in our lives in ways that are so easy to take for granted. You know the amount of people I've had to write references for when they've gone off to do some work here or apply for a job here, the amount of people I've seen get their first jobs and had to write references for them as they've grown in the church and, and gone into the professional world and, you know, become high flyers, etc. And the fact that we have relationship in church meant that I've been able to write a reference. And being able to write a reference has helped them progress and advance in their life. And that's just one simple example. The Lord uses Christian community to add to our lives. And I almost said add value because it's a, it's a, it's a phrase that we're familiar with, right? Professional terms, commercial terms. And we're always looking for that added value. And yet the Lord truly adds value to us. But not just add, adds value in a kind of um, self-gratifying way for us. He shares the value that is in him with us more freely as we are in community. Um, I feel like I've jumped straight into this. But it's, 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 it's in my veins. It's, it's, it's pouring out of me. I, I remember when I got old enough to stop going to church. Uh, I say I got old enough to stop. I didn't actually stop going to church. I, w I had the choice. I, I was given the choice because I went to live with my dad and my dad wasn't a Christian. And he was like, you know, you don't have to go to church. He didn't agree with church. And so I was glad at the time. I was early teens and the adventure playground was the spot. And so we were on the zip line, the um, big ropes, small ropes, playing pool, playing table tennis, playing cards, and just chilling. And during that time, I felt a sense of freedom. But then there was a level at which I got introduced to the real world. Because people weren't nice. I mean, I thought that people in church were nosy. Like... People in the adventure were not nice. They were not kind. They were not gracious. 
I mean, if people in church talk about you behind your back, in the world they're talking about you to your face <laughs> without impunity. They're not business. And so I began to kind of feel the difference as to what it's like not being in the community of faith, not being among the people. Now, there was no way in which the, you know, the church was perfect. And that's one of the reasons why I was glad to be out of there, because it's like, you know what? People, them are so inner, always inner my business. And this is me as a 12-year-old thinking like that. <laughs> like I had any business to be inner, you know what I mean? But always in... Got some to, and so I was glad until I wasn't. I was glad until I wasn't. Because there came a point when, actually, I was And when my dad became a Christian, that was a turning point for me because I didn't expect him to become a Christian. And when he became a Christian, he, he gave me another choice. Either you're going to go to church with me or with your gran. <laughs> you're, you're like, church or church, where's the other option I'm looking for here? And yet, when I went back to church, and that was, you know, catalytic in me becoming a Christian, I said, I'm going to go to church with you because at least nobody really knows me there. They're not going to be kind of wanting to debate on me going to live with you and not live with my gran anymore, who I grew up with in the church and so on. So I'll have a little bit, I'll be able to just kind of blend in. And yet... When I went to church, albeit a completely different church to the church that I grew up in, I felt a sense of being back home. I felt a sense of being where I was meant to be. When I was in the adventure on a Sunday, it felt good, but it didn't feel right. Because I knew I weren't meant to be there. And when I got back to church, it was like, albeit a different place. There were certain commonalities. There was something real about the genuineness of people's kindness and interest and appreciation. There was something real about the way in which people looked out for each other. There was something real about the, which that, uh, about the way in which people were sincere in their intentions towards others. And that was refreshing and relieving. And so, I say that all of that to show that, you know what, as much as I've grown up in church, church wasn't always the place that I wanted to be. And for many of the reasons why people leave churches, and yet I knew it was a place where I was supposed to be. And actually, especially now, that I delight to be. And so, as we think about, you know, the day and age in which we live, the changes that we've gone through as a society and are going through, the way in which church is in a place where it's being redefined. What is church about? Why should we even be there? I mean, how should we even do it? We've set our attention to seek the Lord, seek the scriptures, to hear from the Lord as to answering some of those questions. And so where do we start? Do we start in the New Testament when the church emerges? Well, actually, we'll see today that the church wasn't a, merely a New Testament concept. It wasn't a new idea that materialized with Jesus. But it was always part of the heart of God. And so today we're going to look at the church from eternity to Eden. From eternity to Eden. <clears throat> this is what we might call a, um, a biblical theology in the approach that we're taking. And so we're kind of looking at the scriptures and we're looking at redemption history, which begins in Genesis at the beginning. God's intention was always redemption. And we're going to look at highlights along the way. And so we will be looking at um, aspects of Genesis 1 to 3 today. Um, and then also we will be looking at Ephesians 1. And so I'm going to read the verses from Ephesians 1 um, and then I'll pray. 
Ephesians 1, chapter 3 to 4, sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 14. Verses 3 to 14. Reading from the ESV. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy toward us that we're interacting, interacting with you today by mean of, means of your word and the work of your spirit. And our desire is that, Lord, we would, have a, we would capture a sense of your heart and that, Lord, we would um, be changed and transformed, that, Lord, we would be strengthened, that, Lord, we would be energized, that, Lord, we would be drawn closer to you, and that, Lord, we would more faithfully fulfill your purpose that you have put before us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would supersede my limitations and that you would speak by your spirit to our hearts today. And I ask these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. <clears throat> the passing of our queen um, has affected many people in ways that they never anticipated. There were people, I was listening to the radio and listening to the call-in shows and people calling in and sharing their feelings and their thoughts about the passing of the queen. And so many people said it affected me in ways that I didn't expect. I felt so emotional people crying, people inspired to write poetry, people, and these are people who, in the main, never even met the queen. They didn't know her personally. She'd never been to their house. She'd never made a direct contribution to their lives, and yet had such an impact upon them in her passing. Brother Andrew shared, and I, and I, I thought it was quite... Um, something to reflect on you sharing, Brother Andrew, your earliest memories of the Queen and thinking that actually she would have been reigning at that time. 70 years! Se I mean, if anyone's held any kind of leadership position, I mean, it could be just leading your family, you know, trying to lead your household, trying to lead your kids. Imagine having to do that for 70 years, they're still in your house. Depend, like, it's not really a welcome prospect that you look for, I mean you love your children right but you look forward to that time when you know they're going to grow up and have, I mean I know mums you don't want to let them go You're gonna, you always keep their room and so you want them to kind of be able to kind of go off but come back but you still want that little bit of space right 70 years reigning as monarch that alone is worthy of respect and admiration. 
And yet, the distant relationship that I would suggest most of us, I mean, Brother Andrew, I'm sure you've met the Queen a number of times, and you even just gave us a glimpse. But most, most of us normal people, <laughs> we've never met the Queen. And yet, we see such an example of what it means to be in community as it relates to the impact of her passing. Because we don't have to have met the queen to be affected by her passing. And that's not even just emotionally. You may have been looking forward to something on TV over this last few days and it's regularly scheduled, um, scheduled TVs off. And it, no, no football. And you've been impacted. And you have to find something else to do with that time because you've been impacted. Even those who are Republicans and they don't want the monarchy and don't like the monarchy and have got issues with the monarchy and all that the monarchy's done and there's issues to be taken, historically speaking, the fact that her passing would even evoke that kind of response demonstrates the impact of community. And so we see the impact of the Queen passing, one who, is the, the, who has been the head of our community, nationally speaking, internationally when you consider the Commonwealth, so many of us hailing from Commonwealth nations. Community is part and parcel of our DNA as it relates to human existence, our human experience. And when we think about church community, no less is true for the Christian. Whether you're someone who's regularly in church, seldom in church, as someone who has faith in God and professes Christ as Lord, the church is relevant to your life as a community. Why is that? Where did all of that start? Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Right at the beginning, the first four words of the scriptures put it out there for us. In the beginning... God. No discussion or debate, no if, buts, or maybes. In the beginning, God. And as a side note, to this day, there is no one who can disprove that. And you're like, but what about atheists and what about scientists? No, 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 don't worry. They cannot disprove the existence of God. They can only speculate on it. They can only theorize, but they weren't there in the beginning, but God was. Coming up in the faith, um, Ray Comfort and uh, Way of the Master, which wasn't Way of the Master in them times, had an impact on me, and I, I love the statement he had. He had a book, actually. I think it was a book. Yeah, yeah, it was a book. It wasn't just one of his tracks. He, he created a track out of it, but it was a book, and it, and it said, God doesn't believe in atheists. Come on. You remember, Pastor? Listen, I remember reading that on the tube and getting people like <laughs> snorting and so on like, as they sat next to me looking at, the, looking at the title. And I would hold it up bold like, yeah, I won't say something, innit? <laughs> God doesn't believe in atheists. Because no one can prove that God doesn't exist. No one can prove that there wasn't a God at the beginning. In the beginning, God. And it's interesting because even in this phrase, it speaks to us about God being a community. The word God in Hebrew, Elohim. And this is something that even the Jews have struggled to explain. The Jews who believe there is one God. And yet, the very first introduction we have to God in the Jewish scriptures is God as community. Now you say, how does Elohim result in 
God being regarded a community? Well, it's because the, the, the term Elohim is a singular compound. It is a singular term, but suggests that it is made up of more than one part. So, for example, the word bunch, as we refer to bananas, is bunch singular or plural? You know, he wasn't expecting GCSE English this morning. Right? <laughs> so this is actually key stage one English, to be honest. But bunch is singular. Bunches is plural. But is a bunch one item? But it's singular. Likewise, Elohim. Singular, but compound. And in this, we're introduced to the, what has become to be known as the, the, the Godhead, the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One being, three persons. And the aim today isn't to break down an understanding of the Trinity so that we can grasp it fully and more clearly, because there's always an aspect of it that is beyond our comprehension. And yet, it is there, woven throughout Scripture. What we learn about God in the first instance is that God is self-existent, self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving, ever-present. This is what the scripture reveals to us about God. And God would have to be those things in order to be God. And yet, how can God be the supreme being and yet there be more than one who holds that status? Now notice I didn't say that there be more than one God. How can there be Father, God, the Son, who is God, the Holy Spirit, who is God, and they all legitimately and genuinely be God? Fundamentally, it's because they are one in purpose. They are one in substance, albeit three persons. They are completely in harmony. In fact, there's a term that's used for the eternal relationship of the Godhead, and it's that of intra-Trinitarian love. That the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, for all eternity, enjoy love as community. And yet, being self-existent, self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving, ever-present, they created humanity. And that wasn't because they needed to. They had each other. But they wanted to. What a difference it makes to know that you are wanted by God. You know, as I, as I looked at certain members of the royal family in this period of mourning, I felt for them because I realized that actually, you know what? Your tears are real tears because you really needed the queen in your life. Certain individuals, when everyone was ready to throw them away, she was the one who would hold them close, continue to have grace for them, continue to have mercy toward them, continue to show kindness to them. When even their own family were ready to cut them off. And when I saw those tears, I was like, mm, that's the tears of need right there. You're going to miss that. You needed that in your life. And yet, how many of us want to be missed just because of what we do for others, just because we're needed? 
See, the feeling is, if we're not needed, then no one cares. And we know what that feels like, right? And yet, God never created you out of need, but want. And that want was for you to enjoy him, to enjoy the fellowship that the triune Godhead enjoys eternally. As we look to Ephesians and the verses that we've read, we see some illumination on that mysterious in the beginning period. God gives the Apostle Paul insight to that period in Ephesians 1 verse 4. He said that God chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the, before the world was even, had come into existence. Before its foundations had been laid. God had chose us in him. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself. Predestined before time. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. The eternal mystery of the Godhead. That they would have a community, have a people, is now revealed in Christ. And brought to realization in the community of God, the church. Again in verse 11. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so we see very clearly, as the Apostle Paul is speaking by the Spirit, that the church as we know it was an eternal intention. It wasn't merely a nice afterthought. Oh, well, my son's come and he's given his life and he's been raised from the dead. What am I going to do now? Uh, you know what? Maybe we'll do something with these 12 guys that have been following them around. Maybe we'll make something of them. Interestingly, there's been rightly a lot of consideration given to prophetic fulfillment as it relates to Christ, even as it relates to society and the end times. But as I was preparing this, I, I considered, hmm, it's interesting, you don't really hear much about the prophetic fulfillment of the church being the church. And that would be an interesting study to take because we see it woven throughout scripture throughout the old testament and as we continue through this series you'll be exposed to further highlights of that now there is a sense in which actually not only has god intended that he would have a people who would enjoy him but there's a sense in which it is a fundamental expression of himself. The word church means in the, in the, in the Hebrew is um, assembly. In the Greek, it's the gathering or the gathered, those gathered together from among others. Either way, communicating a similar idea that there are a people who are set apart from others, gathered together as one under one identity for God, by God, and to Him. And it's no surprise because God Himself is gathered and set apart. In some ways, the Trinity is the first church. I say that carefully 
because we are not God and God is not us. And yet we see a model, we see a, a picture. Now how that picture plays out and, and how, that, how we begin to apply that and learn from that is a whole nother conversation. And there's been lots of ink spilled over that. But the reality is that as an expression of himself, God has intended for us to experience and be like him in that regard. Now, as we look at Ephesians 1, we see that there are... Ooh, at least nine in the, in the small section that we've read, nine characteristics that tell us that God's intention for the church is not about us. And you might say, but Pastor E, that's a bit, I mean, we're talking about church and being a part of the church and the Christian community and impact of not being, and so on and so forth. But actually, no. The church is all about the Lord Jesus Christ, not us. The gathering or community of God's people exists, verse 3 of chapter 1, in him, verse 4, before him, verse 5, to him and through him, verse 6, for him and by him, verse 10, under him, verse 11, because of him, verse 13, with him. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the reason and being for the church's existence. It's not just about what we get from it or even what we bring to it. It's all about Jesus. Um, some of you will have been here last week and seen that there's a, a book that um, is uh, somewhat of a, a reference for us as we're going through this. Um, it's called The Message of the Church by Chris Green. And um, Chris Green says this. 19 times in Ephesians, Paul says, we are in Christ. Three times that we are with Christ. Everything exists under Christ. And we relate to God through Christ. Our actions show our reverence for Christ. And we should live and love as Christ. Fundamentally, church is about Jesus. Church is for Jesus. Church is by Jesus, church is through Jesus, and church is to the praise of the glorious grace of Jesus. This being the case, how does that affect our view of church? How does it affect our view of why church exists, why we go to church? How does it affect who the church even are in our eyes? How does this cause us to evaluate our experience in church? How does this align with what we want from church? How does this affect the way we view the purpose of church? It's all about Jesus. That can be challenging because for so many, church is an opportunity to, to get blessings, get favor, you know, get that ace up the sleeve, get that advantage in life, to have needs met. But is that the right approach when actually church is for Jesus. 
before it's for me. It primarily exists for Jesus, but not only. The Lord in his love uses it in our lives. And so how do we evaluate church? I mean, okay, so if there's lots of people there, does that mean that actually that's better? Any less, any more um, glorifying to Christ than the small church? I mean, if God is eternal and size is irrelevant to him, does big or small make any difference? If Christ gave himself for the church, then if there were three people there, would he love them any less? <laughs> no. And so in some ways, this liberates us from some of the kind of expectations that people place around church. It liberates us from some of the expectations that we can even have of church. Because ultimately, it's quite liberating to know that I don't have to have a church experience that causes me to get my own way all the time. I'm not Jesus. It's not for me. And so even when that happens, it's okay. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm in the wrong place. In fact, actually, it could be affirmation that I'm in the right place. Because Jesus uses those experiences that rub us up the wrong way to make us more like him. To remind us that he's Lord and not us. Now... Looking back at Genesis, in chapter 1, verse 26 and 28, 26 to 28, we see the Lord speaking in community. Let us make man in our image. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God acts on this intention and this desire and he creates humanity. He brings us into existence and he does so as those and only those who are made in his image and likeness. Now again, there's been lots of ink spilt by theologians as to what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God. One of the things we appreciate is that God has made us relational. We are social, emotional beings. And we're made for compatibility with God. His image and likeness. And none of the rest of the creation holds that significance. And this is why it hurts even when people who are not people that name the name of the Lord and yet they get treated unjustly and they, they get treated poorly or they experience hardship and suffering. It hurts our hearts because we recognize that there's something special, there's something sacred about humans, about people being made in the image of God. The Imago Dei. And so we've been made with com compatibility 
in order that we might connect with God and reflect God. In this, interestingly, we see God speaking in plural, let us create man in our image. And yet, in unity. And he made them male and female. And so there is to be a oneness amongst the people of God. And Paul speaks on this in Ephesians 4. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord God and Father of all, etc., etc. Seven times, repeatedly, the term one is used in that section of text. Emphasizing, and we'll come back to that in more detail another time, but emphasizing the oneness. God has one people, regardless of denominational names, regardless of traditions and approaches to churchmanship, regardless of doctrinal differences, all who name the name of the Lord are His. And we need to recognize that. Not only because we ought to be embracing of others, but we ought to rejoice at the fact that we are a part of a community bigger than ourselves. We are part of a community bigger than ourselves. When Elijah had confronted the prophets of Baal, and he conquered them, and he went and he sat down, and he felt like he was the only one left, he felt depressed. And the Lord said, I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone, my brother. You're not alone. you got company. That was the encouragement. And having made the first humans, Adam and Eve, the injunction is to go and multiply. Let there be many. Let there be many. And some call this the creation mandate and the, the, the foreview of Matthew 28, the salvation mandate. It's got that same sense of impetus to go and make, go and multiply, go and make disciples. And we see this foreview of God's intention to have a people that is made up of many people. Church isn't just about us, and it was never God's intention that it would be on any level. As we turn over to Genesis chapter 2, uh, I'm going to read verses 15 to 25 and just make a few observations as we get ready to land the plane. Genesis chapter 2, 15 to 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave her father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In verse 18, God said, it is not man, not good that man should be alone. A lot of people mistake that for God saying Adam was lonely. Adam wasn't lonely. Adam walked with God. He really wasn't lonely. And yet Adam had purpose. In verse 15, we see that before the fall, even before the woman was created, Adam was given purpose. He was placed in the Garden of Eden to work it, to tend it, to keep it. Our purpose isn't defined by the church because our God-given purpose is something that is God-given between us and God. But it is to find its outworking and to flourish in its expression in the context of church. When God said it's not good for Adam to be alone, I'm going to make him a helper. In times past, people have often said, I'm going to make him a, a helpmate. And that's not what the text said. And they're quoting from the King James Version. In the King James Version, it says, God will make him a helpmeet. And that term was an old English word for suited. And we see this from the context. Adam's named all the Adam animals. And God's presented them to him. Now remember, what was God's intention when he brought the animals to him? What was it that God said before he brought the Adam animals to him? He said, it's not good that man be alone. I'm going to make him a helper fit for him. And then he creates all the animals. You'd think, okay, Lord, just cut to the chase. Create the woman first and then deal with the animals. But actually, he's demonstrating that none of the animals are compatible. Now, oh, no time. Who went into the ark? And who? Animals. But none of them hmm, were compatible to continue the purpose of God in Apart from humans, God never just saved animals. He saved them for the purpose of serving the human purpose of God. And we see a glimpse of this here. The animals created first. Adam names them. No helper is suited to him. And then God causes him to fall into a deep sleep. And takes one of his ribs. I, I love old school preacher. You know those um, wedding sermons. Growing up in church, I went to a thousand weddings without exaggeration. It was probably a thousand weddings. And very often you would hear, you know, at this point, the preacher, Husband, please notice that God take the rib from the man's side. Not from her feet. So that she's beneath him. Not from his head top. So that she's above him. But from his side. Because she's beside him. Partners in the grace of God. Some of the oldies are goldies, right? God takes the woman from his side. And presents the woman to the man. And the man recognizes. And here we have human community. You see, this isn't just about marriage. It is about marriage. But it's also about community fulfilling God's purpose together. Because that's what Adam needed. A helper to help him fulfill God's purpose. He wasn't just in need of companionship. 
He wasn't even missing intimacy of a physical nature. He didn't want for anything. But the Lord determined that he needed a helper to help him fulfill purpose. And again, you know, one of the reasons we rejoice in the fact that this isn't just about marriage because it can sort of affirm that sense that, well, if you're not married, then you're a second-class Christian. And in so many places, you can kind of get that vibe communicated in church life. Singles feel like second-class Christians because they're not spoused up. But actually, I mean, you never hear them talking about the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, right? It's better to be single. And if you can't, then get married. Because when it comes to fulfilling the purpose of God, devoted without distraction, if you can hold that down and do that, go hard for the Lord. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. And so singleness isn't sinful. Singleness isn't a second-class state. But the antidote to singleness, quote-unquote, is not marriage, but community. Christian community. Being in community together. That community is a diverse community. When Adam looked at his wife, he very quickly realized that she wasn't like him. Now, it seems today that people struggle to understand what a woman is and to simply answer the basic question. But we see from the beginning that men and women have distinctions and very much more than physical. And those distinctions are complementary. They work together to enhance the ability for us in community to fulfill purpose, to fulfill the purpose of God. And yet, that otherness, and, you know, some of you guys are uh, fairly newly wed, and um, some for a while, but it doesn't take long to realize that the otherness that we possess as men and women can be kind of jarring. Because ladies, you know, when it's socks at the bedside and football incessantly on the TV and, I mean, some of you are into your football anyway, so it's like that ain't even a problem for you. But there are those things about living with a man that can be a bit... Long. And yet, let the truth be told, the same can be said for men. There are certain things, oh, look, we're going to go, yeah, 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 yeah. This works. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. And there are certain things for us men that are kind of long when it comes to living with a woman. I mean... I don't know how many times in my life, bearing in mind a household of three women, not three wives, three women, <laughs> grown, grown daughters who are very happy to tell me about myself. I don't know how many times I have to be told, I had to, used to, hard ears. They say hard, hard ears makes a soft bottom. Yeah, I learned. How many times I'd have to be told, can you put, put the toilet seat down? And I'm like, why can't you put it down? I have to pick it up. <laughs> it's like, it works both ways, right? I leave it up, you put it down. You put it down, I pick it up. It works. We're all doing work out here. That's, that's what I call it, equity. I'm always having to... No, come on. But it wasn't until I learned that 
You should flush with the seat down anyway, the lid down as well. Flush with it down to keep all the germs inside. That I think I got converted, really and truly. And you can bet that Judith was very quick to teach me good reason to keep the seat down. But our differences remind us that we are other. And this teaches us about the fact that as humans, we are other than God. We are not like him. And it teaches us that God puts up with so much from us, but we don't have to put up with him because he's perfect in all his ways. And it glorifies Christ all the more when we encounter our otherness and struggle with our otherness because it's to serve as a reminder of how we are not like God. When our needs are not met and our preferences are not fulfilled and it's not the way we would like it and we feel like Jesus died and left us on the throne and everything in the house should run the way we want. There's only one Lord, one Savior. Now, a quick glimpse across the page in Genesis chapter 3 shows us something quite interesting. Because... Here we see man's been given the mandate don't eat of the fruit and yet in verses 8 and 9 after he and Eve have eaten of the fruit we see this scene Genesis chapter 3 verses 8 and 9 and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This has always struck me as so beautiful because God knows everything. And God knows that they had flocked. God knows that they had sinned. God knows that they had rebelled against him. And yet, look at God. Some call this the missio day, the missionary God. God comes walking in the garden. Some, some commentators say, as was his custom. He came walking in the garden in the court, looking for the man and his wife. To the point where they weren't there where he'd expect to see them, quote-unquote. God knows where they are. And yet he calls out. God came seeking fellowship with his most precious creation. Just as God seeks fellowship with his people, his people, the church. And God had to Seek fellowship, even among a people who were in rebellion against him, as Adam and Eve were. It was for God to seek out the lost. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, I think it is, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. God is always the one who takes the first step toward us. God comes to seek fellowship. And yet this is why Christ came. Because when you look on in chapter 3, you see that when God confronts their sin, he then banishes them in verses 23 and 24 from Eden. Banishes them from the garden. Banishes them from fellowship with him. Chapter 3, verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, verse 24, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The community of God were no longer gathered, they were scattered, scattered from his presence. And we'll see this repeatedly as a theme, gathering and scattering. 
And this was an expression of judgment, as it often is. They were scattered from the garden and had no longer had access, access denied, restricted by the guardian. They couldn't just come back in as and when they felt like. And from that point forward, God had to come and look and search and seek in order for any to come into relationship with him. And so when we read in Ephesians 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That sense of just as with the first Adam, the last Adam being put to sleep. And yet as he was put to sleep, the spear was thrust into his side and blood and water poured out. And that was the indication of the fact that he was dead. He slept the sleep of death. And yet it was in the indication of his death that the birth of the church was heralded. See, Eve was taken from the side of the first Adam, but the spear was pierced into the side of the last Adam, creating the circumstances for a people to be made his own the outpouring of his blood, the outpouring of his love, that water being indicative of what some would say, Jesus dying of a broken heart. The sack around the heart had ruptured and serum poured out with the blood from his side. Such is his love for his people, his bride, the church. And so, how do we view church in light of that? How do we view each other knowing that we are a people for whom he shed his blood? It makes all the difference when we can't agree, when we can't get on. And yet we look at that person and we recognize that Jesus shed his blood for that person. And regardless of how our otherness rubs us up the wrong way, I'm to respect and to love and to cherish that person because Jesus gave himself for them. You see, it's maybe at times difficult that we would see that of ourselves, especially when we're in our sin. And yet by nature, we are those who are much more readily willing to overlook that when it comes to the sins of others against us. Christ died to bring us together as one people. Christianity is a community endeavor. Ephesians 2, 11 and 13. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from com the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Alienated, separated, strangers, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been brought together as one people. And so, I don't know if some of you guys might remember 80s, 90s TV. 
I remember growing up watching programs like The Lone Ranger and Tonto. You know, there was, there was a show called Water Margin. And it, like, kind of kung fu. It, it was like the pre-runner to Monkey. Some of you remember Monkey maybe more. But Water Margin. And, that, and there was always these individuals that's kind of going around, wandering around and, you know, righting wrongs and then moving on to the next town. And, and for some people, that's the epitome of, that, like, that's the ideal when it comes to Christian life. Some might even go as far as saying, you know, actually, the A-team, as long as I've got my core, my squad, that's it. Um, but there was, a, there was a show that I used to love um, in the, the 90s. Any of you guys remember Cheers? Yeah. With, with Ted Danson. I don't know, I just used to love that program. I think it used to come on at about like 9.30 on a Friday night or 10 o'clock or something like that. And it was kind of like one of those ones that you knew you kind of watched just before you go to bed. And it was a real kind of feel-good show. You know, that that's where Fraser, a lot of people know Fraser, and that's where he first got exposed. Like that's, he got his spin-off show as a result of being in Cheers. Listen, you need to go on YouTube and watch Cheers, you know. And Cheers had a theme tune. And, and the hook to that theme tune was where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. And no matter what happened and no matter what kind of words you'd have, you'd always see them all come back together the next week where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. We're made for community. We're not made to be alone. We're not made or meant to function alone. The reality is we need each other. And that doesn't mean that our relationships are going to be perfect and seamless because we're sinners. But in that experience, we are all the more grateful for Jesus, who is perfect, and who gave himself to make us his own. I'm going to invite the team to come back as I pray. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.